Aloha in the powerful and precious name of Jesus. Well, just a heads up, if today's sermon sounds a little pointed and perhaps not as applicable to just about everyone, it's because I have the honor and privilege of leading worship at Emmanuel Lutheran Church on the island of Maui this Sunday. I have been asked to go over and represent the church as a whole, to let them know that they are not alone, that we love them, that they are loved, and that they're unique and unreproducible miracles of God, and we are so grateful and thankful for their work among all those affected by the wildfires. If you show up at our Savior, a good friend of mine, by the way, is going to be leading worship, and here's the wonderful part of that. He's been one of the counselors who has been on the ground these last two weeks, willing to listen and console and, and just comfort those who literally are trying to sort through feelings that, well, they, well they, they don't totally understand. And so he's been doing an amazing job, and he's going to be able to share stories about that. So today, here's the gospel lesson. Jesus turns to the disciples and says, so who do the people say I am? And, and they rattle off all of these prophets and famous individuals. And, and then he turns and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, blurts out, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Bonus points for me. Yay, me. Here's the thing that we're really asking. Here's what Jesus needed us to know. Because the truth of the matter is, this question doesn't make sense until the next section when he says, i got to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be suffering. I'm going to die. But on the third day, I'm going to rise again. You see, it's in these moments, wildfires, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, personal crises, that it matters who Jesus is to us. Most of the time, we just ask him to do cheap party tricks. But there are times in our life, there are times in our community, there are times in our nation and our world when it really does matter that Jesus really is our Savior. That's where we'll be today. By the way, just a quick update. Thanks to your generosity, we've raised over $15,000 for wildfire relief it's already doing good among the individuals. Uh, we've got tremendous amount of, of response from all over the world, literally. And I just want to say thank you. Um, because whether it is your prayers, whether it is your gifts, just as St. Paul said in our epistle lesson, what matters is that you are who God created you to be, doing what you need to be, whether it's at your home, whether it's in a larger community, or whether it's around the world. Thank you for being who God created you to be make a difference in this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us your name in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you already know Frederick Buechner is one of my favorite authors. He understands brokenness and grace. On the evening of 9-11, in one of New York City's largest churches, a crowd of believers and not believers had gathered to ask questions and hopefully find some answers. So what questions do you have for God? What would you like him to explain? In the light of wars and rumors of wars and droughts and heat bubbles and wildfires and so many other things, do you have any new questions for him? Well, that night in New York City with the Twin Towers still burning just blocks away, sirens wailing, hospitals overwhelmed, the preacher started off with, at times like these, God is useless. At first, Buechner was appalled. Then he thought the preacher was brave. And finally, he accepted the truth of the statement. He added, 
In times like these, all we can do is draw close to God and to each other as best we can, the way those stunned New Yorkers did, and to hope that, although God may well be useless when all hell breaks loose, there is nothing that happens, not even hell, where God is not present with us and for us. Well, for those of you who are logical and sequential in your thought process, A plus B plus D plus C, anyway, it always equals E. In other words, there's this very exact formula. You probably struggle understanding my sermons. I'm much more of a random abstract guy. My hope and my prayer, by the way, is something I say that maybe doesn't strike you at the moment you're listening will pop up later. Hopefully not at 3 a.m. I don't want to cause you insomnia, but will pop up and cause you to reflect, maybe do some study, to go back and say, what did he mean by that? Or, you know, I need to know more about that, or I'm a little unsettled by that. You see, when I was at the seminary, they told me to preach like Jesus. Jesus often asked trick questions. A trick question is when somebody walks up to you, a friend, and says, what are you doing Friday night? Now, they may have tickets to the Taylor Swift concert, or they may be asking you to help them move. And so if you say no, you're going to miss out on the concert of the decade. If you say yes, you're liable to be going up and down stairs carrying very very heavy things, maybe even 10 flights of stairs, and trying to pack it all into a U-Haul. Today's gospel is actually two trick questions. Who does the world say I am? And who do you say that I am? The question actually doesn't make sense until they put their answers out there for everybody to hear. See, that's when Jesus continues the conversation by saying, I must go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer many things. I will be killed. But on the third day, I will rise again. That's when we discover the purpose and the reason for the questions. We may boo old King Herod during Holy Week when Jesus comes before him in a mock trial and quoting Jesus Christ, superstar, prove to me that you're no fool, walk across my swimming pool, prove to me that you're divine, turn my water into wine. But the truth is, most of us only ask Jesus for cheap party tricks until the day, well, a wildfire burns or a terrorist strikes or the doctor says, I'm sorry, it's cancer or the son or daughter becomes a product. You know, it may have been 2,000 years, but the crowds listening to Jesus preach aren't much different than the crowds that are in churches today listening to preachers preach. We are not big fans of doom and gloom, death and suffering. Health and wealth and some puppy dogs and ice cream are more our style. So, next week's thing, we understand why Peter tries to, you know, change Jesus' style of preaching from I got to go to Jerusalem to, hey, wait till you see what I've got coming up next. Got a few things up my sleeve you're really going to be impressed with. So back to Jesus' trick questions. Why does it matter who people think he is? Let me ask you, who do you think he is? And by extension, what do you expect from Jesus because of who you think he is? See, if he's just a nice person, how does that flavor your expectations? If he's just a nice person, well, yeah. How about if he's a great teacher? What does that do for you? If he's a crazy pastor or delusional fanatic, What about that? Or, and I'll be honest, this is really out there. What if he really is the Son of God? 
When Jesus asked the first question, the disciples don't have to think too hard because they've been listening to the crowds talk. I mean, everybody wants to know who Jesus is. There's no shortage of gossip. So they say John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. I don't know if you thought about this, but you know, for Jesus to be any of them, it's going to require a resurrection. Well, except for Elijah, that would require a round trip on the fiery chariot. See, there's some serious theology going on there. If Jesus is just a good preacher, teacher, or a crazy pastor, well, no resurrections or fiery chariots are needed. That's why Jesus gets personal with the second question. His disciples have now been following him for months. They've seen him, well, heal the sick, raise the dead, turn uh, just a few loaves and fish into enough to feed a huge crowd, hang out with lepers and sinners, turn tables over, chase people out of the temple, and they're still following him. And so he says, who do you say that I am? Peter doesn't even raise his hand. He just blurts out, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You know he's got a smug look on his face. You know, bonus points for me. Let me put some context to this. When we say who we think Jesus is, we are also saying who we think or know we are. See, if I don't need a savior, then Jesus can just be a good pastor, teacher, or crazy street corner preacher. If I'm not lost, Jesus doesn't need to be the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to find the one. If I am not broken in body, mind, or spirit, Jesus doesn't need to be the great physician. If I'm never going to die, Jesus doesn't need to be the resurrection. If I am quite content with the way things are going in my life, Jesus does not need to be the way, the truth, or the life. You know, one thing Lutherans do pretty good is worship. And I'm not talking about uh, whether we use the actual hymnal or a video projector or if it's Divine Service 2, Setting 2, the old TLH 5 or 15 or the latest fad style of worship. I'm talking about how we start off worship. Oh, we make a few announcements. Maybe we do the invocation and sing a song. But then we put it all out there. We confess our sins. We admit in front of God and everybody else that we may not be the perfect, totally together, beautiful, talented, amazing person that everybody else sees on the outside. Turns out we have a sin or two, or maybe a million. And that means Jesus needs to be more than a good preacher or teacher, more than just a really nice guy, and certainly more than a crazy street corner fanatic. We need him to be the one who can save us. Because if he can't, then to be bluntly honest, none of this really matters. In our confession, we tell the truth about our darkness, our pain, our needs, where we fall short and can't get up again. We can't just tell God these things. We need the community of faith to know who we are and who we believe Jesus is because these things are, well, something that no one should have to go through alone. And we're pretty sure we aren't the only imperfect people on the planet. There just might be a few more people going through some of the same kind of things that we are and, well, who could use a savior? The prophet Habakkuk lived and wrote during the Babylonian exile. The people had lost their homes and everything they owned. They were carted off to a foreign land and turned into slaves. And God sent Habakkuk to them so that they didn't lose their identity. Now, the fact that it was God who allowed the Babylonians to conquer Israel and take them into captivity was still a very sore subject which is why Habakkuk was rarely welcomed by anyone. But still he went. In one of his more depressing sermons, he wrote, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you not listen? Or cry to you violence and you do not save? Why do you make me see all of this wrongdoing? 
He might have been a prophet of God, but that didn't mean he had figured out God's role in all the suffering, pain, and affliction that he was witnessing in the world. We all know suffering and trauma are part of the human experience, but that doesn't mean we have to like it, nor does it mean that we won't look for somebody to blame when our world and our life burns before our eyes. Ever wonder why we baptize babies? My Baptist friends always love to ask why we would do that to those poor, cute little babies. My response is pretty clear. We brought these little ones into a world that is torn apart with hate and anger and violence and death and disease and pain. And because we haven't been able to fix any of that yet, actually we've just made it a lot worse, well, baptism is a bit of an apology on our part. And it's a huge promise on God's part that everything is going to be okay. See, they might be children living in a broken world, but they are also children of the promise and children of resurrection. As St. Paul says in the book of Romans, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, present or the future, powers, height, depth, or anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I get an amen? Sorry, that's my old Baptist heritage coming out. But let's face it. If there's anything that should cause us to say amen, it's those words from St. Paul. Now, we may only get baptized once. And whatever water that doesn't get wiped off by the pastor or the mom quickly evaporates. But that doesn't change that baptism is an every moment promise from God to you. Now, Luther said, whenever you wash your face, remember your baptism. And that's actually kind of silly since babies can't remember their baptisms. Unless, of course, it's not the actual baptism they're supposed to remember, but instead the promise of God. That is definitely something worth remembering. When the pastor said, child of God, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit and marked with the cross of Christ forever. We are a church of the cross before we are a church of resurrection. Before something can be resurrected, it first has to die. I know we don't like that, and we'll do almost anything to escape it, but it's true. Remember when Jesus was teaching us about farming? You know, those little moments, you know, where Jesus says, you know, enough theology. Let's talk about something like fishing or farming. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And thank you, Jesus, for all that amazing farming help. I'm going to add, then those seeds fall to the ground and die and produce even more. And we suddenly realize it's actually not farming and wheat that Jesus is talking about. It's us. It's our faith and it's our lives. Here's something I know. You are here today. Now, maybe you watch these videos every Sunday. Maybe you watch them some Sundays. Maybe this is your very first time. God has all sorts of things that help you heal to allow your soul to be refreshed. If you watch the whole worship service, there is music, and there is scripture, and there is liturgy, and there is prayer. And by the way, if you were here in person, there would be an extended hand. There's a couple of kids that sit in the front row that always smile and sometimes have been known to give hugs. <sighs> my favorite is the moments of silence, because so rarely in my life do I get to experience even just a few seconds of silence. But I need you to recognize something. You didn't come here to be healed. Now, I'm not saying that you don't have things in your life that need to be healed. Some of them really need to be healed. It's just, well, this is where it gets a little confusing, just like Jesus asking, who do you say I am, before he tells us why it's important that we know who he is. You see, the truth is you're already healed. 
yeah, you heard me say that right. You are already healed. Not partially, mostly, or almost. You are, by the grace of God, completely and totally healed. It's just not real to you yet, and most likely isn't going to be until you step off this earth and feel the sweet breath of God welcome you home to heaven. See, the God we worship lives outside time, and so Genesis and Revelation and forever are all happening at the exact same moment. It's mind-blowing to realize that we are already with Jesus in heaven, even though we're living through this sequential order of minutes and days and years. This is why the people of the Old Testament were already saved, even though Jesus hadn't been born, lived, died, and resurrected yet. See, it's why we can trust God to know how this story is going to end, how our story is going to end, because he's already been there and is there. And believe it or not, so are we. The forgiveness of sin was not given only after you confessed your sins. Your sins were forgiven even before the foundation of the earth was laid. That's when the Bible proclaims Jesus became your Savior. Your prayers of ambiguity, pain, or suffering were not answered only after you prayed. Um, The Bible says even before a word is on your lips, God already knows it. Whatever your past is, whatever your future is, it was written in God's book long before you came to be. That's what Psalm 139 says. There are no surprises to the one who holds you in his hand. When that preacher got up to a standing room only church, while the twin towers burned and fire engines and ambulances raced, and lives were changed forever. He said, at times like these, God is useless. And what he meant was, if we were or are waiting for God to snap his fingers and roll back time before 9-11, before Iraq and Afghanistan, before the Camp Paradise or Lahaina wildfires, or any of the other tragedies or disasters that may have struck you personally or in your community or anywhere in the world, then God really is useless because he's not going to do that for us or for anybody else. That's not the way God works. God is useless if all we want is a vending machine or a genie in a bottle who only talks about ice cream and puppy dogs and happy thoughts. You see, the whole reason that we are people of the cross and people of the resurrection is that God didn't stay out there in the cosmos just watching us fall apart or run behind us, uh, cleaning up after us like a preschool teacher. No, God came and got born among us. He went through all the pains and losses and challenges of life. He cried, he thirsted, he was hungry, he was threatened. For all we know, he even had the flu. And then, in the fullness of time, he allowed himself to be nailed to a cross. And even as the crowds dared him to do one last party trick and pop off that cross and go, ta-da, he refused. Instead, he chose to die because it was the way that God had chosen to save us to pay for our sins, to be the substitutionary atonement, the propitiation, all those big theological words. See, no matter what the cost is, you and your eternity matter too much to God to let Satan and death win. The only way home to heaven is not over, under, or around all the pain and suffering and loss. It's through it. And you have a God who isn't afraid of anything and who loves you, by the way, more than anything else in the universe. In fact, when it's all said and done, Peter and the book of Revelation say that you are going to be the only thing left. I mean, that's it. You're going to be the only thing left. Everything else is going to be gone. That's how much God treasures you. And so until that last day arrives, God is going to walk with you through the wind and the waves and the fires of life. Like I said, please read Isaiah 43 if you haven't read it recently. When Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? The only answer that really needs to be said is, you're my Savior. You are God's gift to the world. 
at Our Savior, I've said it a million times, and I'll say it a million more. I promise people that they really are the unique and unreproducible miracles of God. And sometimes I throw in 2 Peter 2, 9, where the King James says we're also peculiar. A little, well, okay, a lot peculiar. You're also loved. Don't ever, ever forget that. And if you ever do, I know God well enough that he's going to send someone or a whole bunch of someone's to remind you. So keep your heart and your soul open and watch for those individuals because it really does matter, just like you matter. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm -hmm.